So where are we holding? So we spoke about how there's these two aspects of Malchus. Malchus, which is the Remimus, the exaltedness. Um, Um, Malchus, as it, which is the Romans, the exaltedness over others, right? Which is the idea of how the sovereignty of the king extends over um, the entire realm. And then there's the Malchus, um, which is what's called his Nasus Metzad Atzma, being exalted um, in a kind of intrinsic way. Um, and again, that's a very hard idea to understand um, because if one feels the need for self-fulfillment or completion, that would be the, the total absence of any Yisnasus Atzmi. We spoke about that yesterday. So I tried to give you kind of a different thing where it wasn't so much that, but just more the kind of bring it down kind of internally to the notion of self-worth. When someone has an implicit sense of intrinsic positive self-worth, so on the one hand, that itself on its own means that what you do is irrelevant. But when that becomes the basis for some sense of who you ought to be, um, what is appropriate for you, that you then use to govern yourself, then so we have the idea of this, this higher level of exaltedness on, um, creating the ground for that lower level of exaltedness. And the similar thing we're gonna talk about with Hashem, that in as much as Hashem is real with a capital R, right, he has the power and authority to make things be real, even if those things intrinsically don't have any reality to them, which is the idea of creation. So there's the malchus as it is the creative power or energy or influence, whatever you want to call it. And then there's malchus as it's rooted in the idea of God being absolutely real, that, that his nasus atzmi. That's what we spoke about yesterday. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're in the paragraph on page 55, the third paragraph. yachid melech. This is the idea of the phrase yachid, he is um, unique. Life of the world, Melech, the king. Pirush, what does this mean? Yachid means he as he is alone unto himself. This notion that he is alone unto himself, this is known as the upper unity, which is the realm of Atsilas, where he and his life are literally one. Um, I'm not going to elaborate on that last phrase, what that means right now. But the key thing we want to see here is that this notion of his aloneness, right? V'nikra elomim, and he's also called the life of the world. Now, there's a tension there between being yachid elomim, right? If you're alone, then you shouldn't be the life of other things. And if you're the life of other things, then you're not alone. alone. So that's referring to spashus midas melech, the extension of that quality of kingship, lias melech to be sovereign over the world, canal, and that involves a um, a process of limiting. Right? So we said before how right that the the malchus that extends outwards is not really anything of the person. Right? There's a there's a kind of a boundary between the person themselves and the influence they have over others because the influence only has takes on any kind of real manifestation 
in as much as interacts with others. And this is um, the light that radiates from above down below. Okay. This is like the Dalit when we say We make Hashem sovereign over, over the heavens, the earth, and all the different directions. Okay? So this is the idea of going from a sense that Hashem is alone and that um, legitimizes and gives, and gives the basis for that lower thing which is how Hashem enlivens and creates everything. And so you're starting with a, so to speak, higher, more fundamental truth of God, and you're saying that that is the basis for the reality which we see, in as much as we see God creating the world, which we don't, which is a discussion for another time. And similarly, sometimes we actually put the word melech there at the beginning, that, and that's the idea that the, the, the root of everything is that he is exalted on his own, and that's the source for the life. This is the idea of exalting him. That one exalts my God, the king. That he should be drawn down as he is unto himself. And that's where the verse continues back to Ashrei, um, where it says that I exalt you, and then I draw down your name forever and ever. Okay. So we have this, you, you, this new idea we haven't seen yet in the text, which is the idea of going from above to below and below to above, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? It's not like God is in space, right? <laughs> what, what does it mean that, so it says, it says sometimes we say, we say Yachid, God is, is singular, he's alone. He's life, the world's Melech, he's the king. And then sometimes we say Melech Yachid, he's a singular king, life of the worlds. And the way the text described the difference, or the Mithra described the difference, is one is going from above to below, and the other one is going from below to above. And, and then he connected that back to the to the to the verse that this whole section was based on, which is I ex- when I say I exalt um, when I exalt you, my God, the King. That's going from below to above. Mm-hmm. And then he says that that going from below to above then facilitates another going from um, above down to below, which we'll we'll talk about later. What's the difference of going from above to below, below to above? Like what? <laughs> Well, we're just talking about two things that are true about God, right? right? Let's go back to the analogy of the czar, right? The czar has this, this um, majesty that radiates over the entire realm, right? And that's, that's the, the lower thing. And then there's this notion that the, the czar is kind of a being on a, totally of his, on his own class, right? He has no peers. He has no equals, um, and therefore, he really doesn't, is in no need of other people. He would be the exception to the rule that a person is a social animal, in so some sense. That, so, and that's the... And that's that, the that why is that... Alone. But what, is, what does it mean that you're going from above to below or below to above? In other words, I'm asking you not the question, why do we label one above and one below? 
That, that I think we can have an intuitive answer. One is a more authentic truth. One is more internal. One is more contingent. It requires some kind of engagement outwards. I, I get that. What's the dip? What do I mean that you're going from above to below or below to above? I mean, the, the factor that these two things, um, you know, we would say this, use, use something more concrete. We have thoughts and we have speech, yes? Which one would we label as above and which one would we label as below? Thoughts above. Thought would be labeled as above, right? It's more internal, it's more, you know, uh, automatic, right? It's, it's more interwoven with us and speech is more external, depends on choice, right, etc. What does it mean, though, to go from above to below versus below to above? It means that... And we're not talking about two people, right? Right? These are two different aspects of God manifesting his truth, right? So what does it mean that you're going from one to the other one? Like, yeah. I'm mirror, by the way. I'm just sitting in. But I was just having a thought, because I, I have, like, a, a background in psychology, and just, like, there's, like, there's, like, this idea of, like, in, in therapy, like top down or bottom up, like approaches to like dealing with whatever issues, and like I'm just thinking like there's on the one hand you can you can think and like cognitively um, like change something and then that like impacts your behavior, or you don't even need to change how you're thinking at all. You can just behave in a certain way, and then that sort of like impacts it. Your, your <coughs> thoughts are almost like ad hoc, going to then become more in line with your behavior. Okay, so that, that would work in many cases in Hasidus, where we're talking about one thing influencing another, right? So I have two, I have, in other words, I don't even need two people, right? I have two aspects of the self, right? And I could say, well, if I've labeled one lower and higher for the reasons we mentioned before, right? It's, I, can, I can change either of them by accessing the other one. Right? I can change the upper one back to the lower one. I can change my, 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 my thought processes by changing my behavior. Or I can change my behavior by changing my thought processes. Here the issue is we're not talking about making a change. Right? We're saying there is a fact. There is a, 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 a truth about reality. And one is a higher truth and one is a lower truth. So where's the notion of movement? Right? In other words, if, if, I, if, if I change my behavior and then that causes my thought patterns to change, then understand there's influence moving from my behavior upwards towards my thoughts or vice versa. If I change how I um, think about things and then that causes a change in my behavior, there's a change in the upper part that's influencing change in the lower part. But here, there's not an upper and lower thing changing. We describe a change. We describe there's, a, there's one truth that's predicated on another truth. So what does it mean to go from above to below or below to above? It just seems like it's a, it's a mirror of whatever is happening above automatically happens below. Can I just say like the exalted, like when a king is exalted over someone, it's like he's above them. Mm-hmm. And then when you're exalted over yourself. Exalted over yourself is an analogy. Don't mix those two things up. Exalted, exalted over parts of yourself is the the thing we can kind of experience that is somewhat an analogy to what it means the king exalted over others, right? And then that kind of sense of like, you have an implicit positive self-worth, right? Would be parallel to the idea that the king is exalted on his own, right? But that was an analogy, right? Okay, thank you. Okay, well, this is still connected to the king, right? So like, maybe, like we're talking about like the bizarre, like how his power extends over everyone, so it's kind of like his power's above everyone, but then sometimes he's 
No. no. Is it like we were talking about how the Hasids, well, like they'll pick their Rebbe? No, 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 no. No, that was a tangent. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm just like a little bit confused on exactly what the question The question is, if we have two things which are above and below, okay? And we're talking that there's a difference of whether we're moving, whether we're talking about going from above to below or from below to above. What exactly would that mean? So if I'm talking about both things exist and then I'm changing one and then there's kind of an influence to change the other, like you said, then it makes sense, right? Is the upper thing changing, causing the lower thing to change? Or the lower thing is changing, causing the upper thing to change? But here we're not talking about two things changing. We're saying you have one thing, you have another thing. They're static. They're just truths of reality. So in what sense is there movement from one? There's not. But the text describes this, when, when, when we have this phrase in our, in our prayers, we're referring to movement from above to below. And then in this text, we're talking about the same two things, but we're talking about moving from below. Maybe it's just where you're standing. It's not It's... Like it works, like it... That's okay. This is a new t- new topic for everybody. You're 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 in the same boat as everybody. Okay. You just but have the audacity to say something, which is good. <laughs> which is good. More people should learn from you. <laughs> like, is it is it kind of a question of like? I, I'm like I'm still like a little bit confused about the question. Like, how is there like two truths that are different? Or you're picking up on an important thing. I would right? say, isn't it the same thing? Like the God that's exalted. It is the same thing. So then why does it make a difference if it's above to below to below? Right? You say it too kind of, but it happens. Happen, okay, so I'm going to give you an analogy. Because very often it is easier to start with an analogy. Okay. What is division? You know, like you learn division, like three, three divided by two. What is it? One into another. Out of another. Dividing. <laughs> yes. Can someone like give me a precise definition? Uh-huh. Turn into a smaller piece into a bigger piece? Oh, or like taking sections. Right. Well, that doesn't always work because you have like, like what's one third divided by one eighth? Oh, one third. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then you're already dealt with. Okay, so I'll tell you. You don't realize this at first, and many people apparently never come to realize this. All division is is undoing multiplication. Okay? Undoing multiplication. Rewinding the multiplication. That's all it is. It's the rewinding of multiplication. Okay? Would you agree? Okay, fine. Now, what's subtraction? Undoing addition. Undoing addition. So what did we just do? We took the four things you do in arithmetic and we made them into? There are only two things, right? That's so true, though. Okay, now let's go one step deeper. What is multiplication? I'm doing division. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, adding. It is a form of it's adding. It's doing addition yeah. multiple times. Yeah. So really, all of arithmetic is just it's, one thing. It's, it's adding. Which is why computers can, can do math, by the way. Because the only thing computers really do is add. But since subtraction is just adding in reverse, and multiplication is multiple addings, and division is, is multiplication in reverse. That's what a calculator is. That's right. So what are we doing? We are taking, we are taking what appear to be, what appear to be disparate phenomena and showing how they are really one thing. One thing. 
Right? In other words... That's what I said. I was just mirroring. No, one second. One second. We're, not, we're not done with explanation yet. Okay? <laughs> okay. So, we're, so I started out this explanation assuming you all knew what addition was kind of an intuitive level. You knew what division is on an intuitive level, right? Yeah. But when you start to really kind of formalize what division is, division is the inverse of multiplication, yeah. subtraction, the inverse of, of, of division. division. Um, multiplication is just... Um, doing addition additional times. And so it's really all just one thing. Okay, we haven't, got, we haven't gotten to the notion of two directions yet. Okay. Now, separate analogy, although related. What is 17 plus 16? 33. 30? I'll never get it. 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, Yes. No, no. I'm asking that that specific thing. You ever mo- added seventeen and sixteen? Sure. I actually doubt it. Seven yeah, I doubt it because well. seventeen is an is an unusual number that occurs in real life, and it's unusual to in real life to have to to be adding this. It's possible, but but the, the, the odds are against it that those were those are which is why I pick them. I pick numbers that don't usually occur. It's like. And even if you had done it before, you weren't referencing the last time you did it and remembering no. the answer, right? No. So you were deriving the solution to something concrete from a kind of general understanding of what addition is, right? Yeah. So you have a general sense of addition, and then you use that to add the different component parts together and then add the component parts of the component parts, that's how you got it, right? Now, do you realize that the mental process you went through in the first example I gave is the opposite of the mental process in the second. In the first thing I did, I took a bunch of different things and I showed you how they're actually all. And in this thing, right, you went from some kind of general, very abstracted sense of say how to add and brought it to one concrete example. And what you did is really no different than if I asked you what is 17,000 plus 864, I just, that would have taken a long, a long time, right? But, what, but so what you were, in the first example, what's happening is you're going from the disparate phenomena and seeing that they're really all one thing. The other way, you're starting from a sense of that one thing and then bringing out how that's manifest in different ways. In this case, that concrete example. Of, Without that sense that they're all one, you wouldn't be able to. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. When everything which is true always has two levels. Every truth is bifurcated. Why? Because on the one hand, okay, and, 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 and I'll use this, this, this um, it's a political statement, but uh, we have people who are like political science, so we'll, we'll use the political statement. E pluribus unum. What does e pluribus unum mean? Oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> 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 what? 
Uno. Uno. Out of many? Oh, one. One. What is that? Well, that's a, that's a political notion that you take many people, right? And you can create one body politic from it, right? Right. Come the notion of it. Okay. That makes sense? Okay. Now, I want you to think about it. Any time you're making a statement of truth, whether you're correct or incorrect is a side point, but let's assume it's correct as far as I can say. You're making a statement of truth, right? You're, 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 you're asserting how there is some kind of fundamental unifying factor among many things that make them cohesive, that make them one. Mm-hmm. How did you come to that? From examining the many, you arrive at some kind of unity. unity. Mm-hmm. But now let's go the reverse. Once you have that sense of unity, you could derive... Many. So now let's use the scientific method as an example. A person observes the physical world, they observe many phenomena. Right? And there's a part of their mind that seeks to make the many into one. one. And so they come up with what we'll call a scientific hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Okay? Let's skip, let's, let's skip the step of verification. Okay? Because that's not relevant to our purposes. Right? So they observed many <coughs> phenomena and their mind brought them to an understanding of how all those are really one thing. Now, could they then from that derive what other phenomena would be that they've never experienced? Yeah. Yeah. Right. In fact, by the way, that's how you design an experiment, right? Is you say, well, my theory of what makes all of this make sense, how it went from the many to the one, that one would necessitate another manifestation I've not yet seen. So if I encounter that manifestation where I expect it, that would verify my sense that the one is correct. Okay, so in other words, it's... It's a movement of the mind in relationship between the two different parts of the truth. The truth is many because the truth of many things, but the truth is one. Mm -hmm. So is the truth seen from the many to the one or from the one to the many? So now, if you come to a sense of God as the creator to God is alone, which way did you go? The many to the one. If you now have a sense of God as the one, does that now give you a totally different perspective on what it means that God is the creator? Sure it will. Because whenever you experience the many, in the context of it being a manifestation of the one, you have a different sense of it. Okay? It takes on different meaning, right? For instance, let's go back to the scientific method. When you, when you have a well-designed experiment, which is actually hard to do, but if you have a well-designed experiment, the, the, the prediction you are making and the observations that you collect, right, are not simply about that little phenomena. What are they? They are, they, are, they are the verification or falsification of some grander truth. Right? That's why the non-scientist, it's always funny like a non-scientist to talk to a scientist, like a real scientist, because there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a frustration in the, in, the, in, the, in the conversation because if you're doing an experiment, the scientist thinks the experiment is very important because the experiment has nothing to do with what they're experimenting on. The experiment is about getting access to some fundamental truth of reality. 
And the non-scientist is like, why are you studying the mating habits of chimpanzees or something? It's like, do we really need to know that? And the answer is, well, maybe we don't need to know that, but that isn't just that. That is a manifestation of some ultimate biological truth. It's interesting. It's like you can only, let's say you start with like that one hypothesis or whatever, and then you go out to the many and you can't come back to the one again. You know, there's, it's not true. Right. So the only way for something to be true is if it goes both ways. That's right. So the way it works is you start with the many. We come to the one. And then you go back to the many. And then that one, you come back down to the many, but now the many is, a, is, is, is different because the many is not just that thing. The many is... That's right. So there's going... There's, there is the process of the consciousness going from a, a consciousness of God as creator to a consciousness of God as alone. And then there's the consciousness going from a consciousness of God as alone to a consciousness of God as creator. But when you go back to consciousness of God as creator, is it the same creator you started with? No, because no, it's now being a creator is, 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 is an is is a, is a instantiation of his aloneness, which is not how you understood creator originally. And so it's that movement of the consciousness between those two, between the, up and, between the upper and the lower thing. That's what we mean above and below and below and above. So in other words like this, If you're not having any conscious awareness of God at all, for argument's sake, not that we know such people, then does this mean anything? No. No. So there's a, there's a, there's a story, uh, not a story, there's a, there's a talk that the, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Sixth Chalad Rebbe gave, where he said Hasidus speaks a lot about serving God in a way from below to above and above to below, um, but people who don't actually engage in the service of God have no understanding of the difference between the two. In other words, like this, let us say I described what I said, but we hadn't gone through any examples. Or when I'm saying what I'm saying, you can't refer back to any examples. Would you have any sense of what? Right, Right? because we're talking about a very subjective thing. How your consciousness moves from what we'll call a lower state of consciousness to a higher state of consciousness. But it's a state of, but the the object that you are consciously aware of is the same thing, right? You didn't shift from being aware of one thing to another. Not, I used to be thinking about pizza, and now I'm thinking about God. I was, think, I was aware of God before, and I'm still aware of God. It was a aware of God one way, moving to a higher awareness of God, and then moving back down to a lower awareness of God. Okay? But if you have no actual awareness of God, then is there any movement happening at all? No. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that's what it means. Let's go read the, the paragraph again. So to it is um, when we go from below to, sorry, when it goes from above to below. Sorry, the raising up from below to above. We exalt my God, the King, to the point where He is the King alone. Merum Levade, exalted alone. Shayum Shach Acha, the Bishran, and after the Kameshu Batmusay, as he truly is, Gamba Ilmais, even in the world, Vizelva Verchashem Chalamvad. Then I will, will bless, and blessing is the idea of bringing something down, bringing it to that lower level of consciousness, your name into the world forever. So, what is the idea? The idea is that now God's creative power that is within creation is now not experienced as the power that, pow- that creates creation, but rather 
the presence of God who is alone. Now, I want to just stop here and point something out. What does that do to your sense of yourself? Because remember, your, your sense of God is, is, is linked to a sense of yourself. This is not like explicitly talked about right here. The, the Mikhail Rebbe thinks, I think, to my understanding, the Mikhail Rebbe thinks that this is um, implicit. It's obvious and it's just implicit case. We have this kind of conscious awareness, okay? We have a self. The self occupies, for, for today's class, I'm gonna oversimplify, two roles in the consciousness. One is that it is the subject, the one who is, the, one, the self is the one who is experiencing the things, right? So if I am seeing something, it is myself who is seeing, it's not yourself who is seeing. If I'm thinking, I'm the one who's experiencing thoughts, you're not experiencing the thoughts, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, right, just like in grammar, right? The I, I is the one who's doing the thing. So I is the one having the subjective conscious experience. But then there's also the self as the object of the experience. Right? I, after all, am aware of myself. I experience myself, right? So there's the I, and then there's the me or the myself. And they're not the same thing. So if you are thinking about yourself, the I who is thinking is not identical with the yourself that you're thinking about. Okay, does that make some kind of sense? Okay, so now when I'm talking to you, Right, so I'm now in a mental state where my consciousness has an awareness of you. Do I still have an awareness of me? Yeah. Right, right. Now I have an awareness that you are listening to me speak to you, right? You, you are people with other minds, right? I'm both in a way that I'm, that I'm aware of and a way that I'm not aware of. My consciousness is picking up on your body language and all sorts of things, but it's also, there's doing it in some sort of internal monitoring. What do I want to say? How am I conveying it, right? So my, the object of my consciousness would be more of our interactions and my, and maybe, maybe not just the interaction itself, which is usually not the case, but also the kind of the, the, the purpose and the efficacy of that interaction and how I feel about that interaction. Right? Thus, that whole kaleidoscope of things is the object of my consciousness, right? Now, what were to happen if I were to really get into the zone and explaining something? I'd be much more just aware of the interaction itself and less aware of so those other things like, how do I feel about what's happening? Um, is this going the way I want it, right? Those things would fall away, right? Conversely, if as I'm ta- t- talking to you, and this happens sometimes uh, to everybody, um, something triggers a new insight. If that insight starts to captivate my consciousness, what happens to my awareness of the interaction? It fades, right? Yeah. By the way, this is one of the explanations um, about the idea of God's relationship with us in exile. If God is captivated by something else, then he is less, so to speak, present with us. Mm-hmm. But okay, so you see, when, you see how it's dynamic? And the self that I am aware of, not again, not myself who is the subject of consciousness, but the self who is, that, it is very dynamic. And it, it has to, you know, there's only 100% of space. Um, and even if the space gets bigger, it's, all, it's all whatever it is. And so it has to fit in wherever it fits in. Okay? Um, you know, the, 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 the parts of myself that I am aware of, that I'm conscious of. Okay, so for instance, 
Um, you're familiar with the Greek myth of Narcissus? Mm-hmm. Narcissus saw his reflection in, in a pool of water and he thought it was so beautiful that what did he do? He never, he never left and died. Okay, so now that reflects um, you know, a, a narcissistic personality disorder, which is that what is the object of your consciousness? Yourself. Yourself. And everything else is only your only way of in as much it fits into and serves and has a place towards yourself. yourself right? That makes it very hard to interact with people in, in kind of constructive ways. Okay? Um, by the way, you can fix that. <laughs> it's treatable. Um, that being said, let's talk about God. If you are aware of God, or as you become aware of God, does that necessarily involve a change in your awareness of yourself? Yes. Yeah, obviously, right? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. What's the first change that an awareness of God would do um, to an awareness of self? Like, if you become aware of God, what is the first change that is going to happen to your awareness of self? What? Be more concrete. I, I'm going to not allow the word small. Less important. Less, no. Less of a sense of self. No. This, by the way, is... This buys us... What? No, what does this... Doesn't, what is this... What it, consciousness becomes that you are a creation of God. No, 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 no. You're no, dissolved. No, no. <laughs> by the way, I, can I be very blunt? Yes. yes. If, if you're getting these higher types of things, they're probably not coming from an awareness of God. They're coming... There's other things that can... Pre- produce a sense of smallness, a sense of dissolving of self that don't necessitate an awareness of God. Yeah. Like being part of something bigger? Nope. No. There was a great... There was a great... No, not even that. Not even that. It's much... Consciousness doesn't... doesn't, Consciousness doesn't normally just go from one thing to the other thing um, radically unless something very traumatic occurs. Right, when you, in other words, if it's you just, your awareness itself shifting and nothing actually objectively occurring, think about it like when you're, think about when you're, when you're distracted and you start to focus. Do you just go from totally distracted to boom, totally focused? Yeah. You have to kind of bring yourself along that journey, right? And so you kind of are, there's a shift taking place, right? Okay. There was a great, there was a great sage member, Yochanan and Zakai. Um, and as he was dying, his disciples, the Talmud says, asked him, bless us. And he says, I give you a blessing that you should fear God the way you fear another person. And they were very offended. (laughs) And they said, that's it? And he said, you should know that when a person does something wrong, they say to themselves, I hope no one sees me. If only you could be aware of God like that. In other words, you've ever been in a room by yourself and someone came in? That someone... Doesn't matter their standing. It doesn't even matter who they are. You now have a sense, that there's somebody else in the and therefore your entire sense of yourself has become what I will call socialized. You no longer can act or feel comfortable acting purely on the basis of your internal experiences. There is some external measure by which you have to be judged, and that's come from that other person. Even though that person is, that person will never do anything to you, right? The mere fact that there's another human being who is aware of how you are behaving, right, causes you a kind of socialization, a kind of inhibition, a kind of, right? Okay, here's the thing. 
if the first awareness of God would be what? Feeling that he's there. there. And if he feels that he's there, what does that do to your sense of yourself? It does that. You, You feel like you are not alone. Not that God is bigger than you. Not that God is more powerful than you. And, and the consequence of this, the very real consequence of this, is the stuff that you know is wrong. Not the stuff you don't know. Mm-hmm. Stuff that you know is wrong, you can't bring yourself to do anymore. Mm-hmm. You cannot do something that you know is wrong while someone else is looking at you. I don't know how it makes you know that God is in I didn't say makes sure. you. That's, that's, that's the first awareness of God. If you would be aware of God, you'd be aware that, so that really he's not, that it's not just that you're here. Who else is here? Oh, someone else. Better. God at least qualifies as someone else, right? Mm-hmm. So then what does that do to your consciousness? You I, I didn't say how you get there. I'm just saying what that first stage would look like. So the first stage of actually being aware of God <coughs> would be having a sense that, no, that he, there's someone else there. And what does that do to you? You act differently. You act differently because you're, you're controlling yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, to some degree, yeah, but to some degree it's a lot easier because, I mean, again, think about how easy it is. Like, oh, let's take something silly. Um, there are people that like have all sorts of weird little things that are like not socially polite. Um, let's say, for instance, um, kids who suck their thumb past like a certain age, right? But the kids who suck their thumb past a certain age, it's interesting, they don't do it in school. There's people around, right? right? And if you open the Code of Jewish Law, what is the first halacha? Shavisi Hashem Negdi Samid. Place God before you at all times, and that prevents you from sinning. Mm-hmm. Not because God's going to hurt you, not because God's going to punish you. God's just a is is, is someone else. And all of a sudden, you that mm-hmm. that social inhibition element of our self kicks in, and now, and so that's what the first thing it does to our sense of ourself is so that it creates a kind of it's called in Hebrew busha. A person has a sense of shame. <laughs> Right? Mm-hmm. Why do we close the door when we go to the bathroom? And we know we're, we're, we're in a state of going to the bathroom, but it's uncomfortable when others. others see it, right? If you're doing something you know is wrong, you can kind of have some sort of like disassociation mm-hmm. from that, but you can't do that when you sense that someone else is there watching you. Watching you. Yes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's stage two? <laughs> That's stage one. This is hard <laughs> to get to. What's stage two? No, we're talking about being aware of God. What does it do to your, if you're more aware of God, what would it do? No, no, if you're more aware of God, what would do the next thing that would do to your sense of yourself? So the first thing you want, you go from that sense of like being you're alone to you're not alone. The sense of uh, someone else is there. The sense of being observed. No, no, God within you is is like, you you go to a place. Yeah, yeah. They have, they, have, they have power and they can affect you. And then we can take that in stages. And here's the rule. What does, what does sensing someone else's power over you do to your sense of yourself? Go again, flip back to yourself. No, because that depends on control, not necessarily. You have to respect. No? <laughs> You're not as in control. You're not as in control. So you feel more vulnerable. Think about this very simply. Yeah? What happens when you go to a place, right, where you don't speak the language and the only way to navigate is someone else to help you out? You feel. You feel, unvul- you feel there's a kind of vulnerability. So you go from feeling inhibited and not alone, which has a kind of a shame to it, 
And then the second sense, second thing would shift to your sense of self would be a sense of vulnerability. No, just one second, stop. If this point, if you felt this way, would be praying be hard? Would praying be hard? No. no. You have a sense there's someone else oh, it's, I mean, it's, and you it's, feel vulnerable and you need stuff. Right. Asking them to help you? Yeah. I mean, as long as you can get up the, get up the courage to, to, to open your mouth, yeah. Why do we have a hard time praying? Because we, we don't want to be vulnerable. And we don't want to, we, we don't feel that vulnerability. And, and, and yeah. more than that, we don't even feel like, let's be honest, you open a city, you start saying words. It's much easier to have a conversation with a random stranger than to three times a day talk to God because it doesn't feel like there's anyone there. Mm-hmm. So we're not even at the stage he's talking about yet. Right? We haven't gotten to creator, just more powerful than you. Okay? Now, I'm going to move a little bit faster. You could then, and again, it's just an awareness of God and what does to sense of yourself. I'm not talking about how you, like what your relationship with him. That's already a, a second thing built on top of that. Okay, the next thing would be when you realize that that vulnerability is absolute. In other words, God is the sole being who has power over everything of your life and you are completely vulnerable to him. Even your free will, right? Yeah, even your free will depends on like God not giving you, God forbid, an aneurysm or something, right? I don't even get mystical, just like something concrete like that, right? An aneurysm in the brain and poof, no more free will, no more functioning, right? and possible death, depending on how quickly the ambulance gets there. Right, so, so now that's like a whole, now, now we're getting into stuff that, that most of us would have a very hard time being comfortable living with day to day, okay? What would be the next thing? It's not that God has power over you. The next shift is where is, is what he calls the lower level here, which is that God is the creator of reality. Because here's the thing. What's the difference between power over versus creator? He's not controlling something else. He, it is it's only something he made that he... It's not he like, made it. It's not he made it. It's not he made it. He's all of it. Everything no, no, no. This is, this is... I'm going to give you, I'm gonna give you a, an example that's easy to relate to. How much, how much is this worth? What? How much I say? Or however much someone says. How, it's how worth however much society as a group treats it as. Because it, in terms of worth, is what? It's worth whatever the material is. Any additional worth is being imbued into it. So the real worth is not this, right? Which is why I have no problem giving this away as long as that worth is preserved in some digital register somewhere. I I do that all the time when I put this in the bank, right? So where is the real thing? This? The imbued value, which, which has nothing to do with this. So now... That's just with value. What if we just say with, with like reality writ large, every aspect of reality, everything from the more moral valence of things, the beauty of things, the goodness of things, the, the tangibility of things, all of that has to be imbued with those qualities because it of itself is nothing, right? That's the, right? So now if that's your sense, if that's your awareness of God, then how do you have a sense of yourself? What is yourself? 
However much Whatever, right, right. So now all of a sudden, what you have now is a shift. Beforehand, up to this point, you went from there's, there's me, then there's God and me. So now I have my, I'm now that sense of myself, I wear myself as a social entity, right? That kind of all those inhibitions and shame that come with being socialized start kicking in. Then there's a notion of God as powerful. So now that kicks in a sense that the self is vulnerable vis-a-vis God. And then that go, can go in a range from in s- small and in certain things to absolute and in everything. Okay? But then there's a shift. And that shift is God is real and I'm only as real as he says I am. Mm. Now that, at that point, we are entering a kind of conscious, an awareness of ourself, which I would say goes, like, not just we're not comfortable with, goes completely outside of, like, you know, regular things. I mean, that's already getting really religious. It's like a really religious mindset. Okay, now, here's the thing. Now we can take you into what we're learning in the text. Let's say I have that consciousness of God. I'm aware of God as the one who, as we said, the the one who, who everything is as real as what he, as what he imbues into it. It's the reality of things and every aspect of the reality is what he imbues into them. They're nothing of their own, including, and, and, that, and because I'm aware of him as that, that means I've, I've sensed myself as only as real as God makes me. But God does make me real, right? Now that's the that's the now what if I were to move upward in my consciousness? God being the thing that makes everything real is grounded in the fact that God is truly alone. Right? That's what we were speaking up until now. I'm not gonna go over the explanation of why that is. That was said yesterday, right? God is the one that makes everything real. That's like the mouth that radiates over the realm, is grounded in the fact that God is truly alone. So now if I'm aware of God as being alone, now what happens to myself? Am I aware of myself? No. At that point, one second. At that point, I'm not aware of myself. And I'm oversimplifying this. This actually has many, many layers and aspects. Why would I not be aware of myself? I'm aware of his aloneness. Because you're You're not a self. But you're the one being aware of it. That is an interesting issue. That is a very interesting issue. Which is why that awareness has to be something which is which captivates you and be shown to you rather than something that you, if you're, if you're directing your consciousness to that, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting paradox. About it, can't make it, it can, but not completely. And I'm not going to, right, but you're, right. In other words, if I am using my volition to direct my consciousness towards an awareness of God's aloneness, I'm going to hit a barrier. Hence the need for the Chachma that we spoke about before. Okay, now, but let's say I now am aware that God is alone. What happens if my consciousness now moves back to God is making me real? Then I'm pretty real. Doesn't it go back to But now we have a very weird thing. Because <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me talk about it. And now we have a very weird thing. You know? Because God is alone. And it tells aloneness that grounds the fact that he makes things real. And however real he makes them, that's however real they are. 
But then what is their reality? A testimony to his. So then what does that make my sense of myself? I am nothing other than a vessel. No, I'm not God. I am a vessel, a conduit to show that, that Hashem is alone. And if you start, and then if you live your life from that place, even if you're no longer ha- are in that conscious state, but you have a recollection of that conscious experience, that is going to change how you live your life, yes? Is that what yeah. No. Like if someone's in a position of that will... No, no, has to do with other parts of the soul. Okay, so you see how that trajectory works? Okay, wait. Okay. Wake up in the morning. What's the first thing we say? What do we say? So, number one, there's an acknowledgement that there's someone else. And that that someone else has done things, right? Okay, so that, that gets you step one and the beginning of step two. And then you have the morning blessings, right? And then we talk about, you know, the things God does for us. And we start speaking about our obligations towards him, right? Because vulnerability, one of the aspects of vulnerability is the sense of being indebted, right? Okay. And then we have stuff in the middle, which I'm not going to talk about so much, which is meant to help us prepare us and get us to the place that we can make that shift um, that God creates us. And then from God creates us so that we are only as real as and then there can be that shift from we're only as real as God makes us to the upper unity, the ultimate truth of Hashem, which is Shema Yisrael. And then once we have had that sense that God is alone, which means at that point, what are we aware of? Only, which is why when we say Shema, what do we do? Cover our eyes. Now, the, the thing is, if you, it, the covering your eyes, we do because we're not really there. <laughs> but if you're really there, your eyes are, 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 are not seeing anything to begin with. Um, the the, the Alter Rebbe says in a, in a letter, he says, the people who, who, who testify falsely when they cl- close their eyes and declare that Hashem is one, meaning Hashem is alone, and at the same time yearn to have the stuff that makes life wonderful, like money and family, bit of a not being totally honest with ourselves but okay but let's say we were to experience that and then what would happen when we say the next thing what's that next thing doing it's bringing it's not it's bringing that sense that God is alone and having that now recontextualize redefine what it means that God creates God makes things real and therefore our sense of our reality has been totally changed that's a very good question Hasidus has a whole discussion about that. The simple answer? The simple answer? Is God deficient? No. If the world is deficient, then what does that mean about the world? Is it testifying to God? No. That's the reason. Why? Because you're trying to make God's aloneness real. If you are supposed to testify to God, right? How can, you know, how can you say the world testifies to God if God is not deficient in any way and there are sick people? That's very different than asking stuff because I want it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a very different kind of asking. Okay, most of us aren't there, but like the reason why Shemun Esrei, from the mystical perspective, why it's put there is because you can, the real Shemun Esrei is, is, is not you're asking for what you need. It's like 
the, the way it's described is the is, it's it's the, it's the it's the it's the slave coming to the master and saying, um, your your palace is falling apart. We need to repair it. So it's not right. He's facilitating something. He's not for himself, and that's what makes prayer truly powerful. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, just one second. No questions. I want. So we'll just read the next paragraph. This is the idea when we say where we're drawing down. Malchus is known that Malchus Nikrashem is called the name, and we spoke about that previously. Right, the name of the king is, is everything is called by on the king's name. As it says, David made a name. We bring the, the, the name of the glory of his kingship to a world of separation in a way that it lasts forever, which is, which is infinite. And that's what the meaning of the word which means eternally. And and if you exchange the letters as a way in which Hebrew letters correspond to other Hebrew letters, the Vav and the Aleph correspond to each other, the Ches and the Ayin correspond to each other, and the big Dalet of and the small dalad correspond to each other, so va'ed and echad are parallel. And so the idea is, now our experience of God as our creator is not an experience of God as our creator, it's an experience of we are, we are nothing other than a testimony to his aloneness and living life in accordance with Judaism in a world where everything is good and holy and pure and safe and secure means that that is tangibly manifest. And the cure for that, when that ultimately happens in the fullest sense, that's called the Messianic era. Yeah. So the level after you make the switch and now you go down to like how God is our creator changes because now... Right, because now it's right. Now it's not the disparate phenomena. It's a disparate phenomenon as a manifestation of that higher truth. Because I was going to say that they sounded similar, but... It- Changes it, but what about the other two levels of like one? All of that stuff becomes irrelevant, and that's that, that, that's why there's a culture amongst Hasidim to make fun of. There's a culture of, of Hasidim that came from great Hasidim who actually went and experienced these things to make fun of people's who people's re- religiosity when it's limited to those things. Like fear and God. Yeah, like oh, you're not gonna like you're not gonna sin because like God is like because God's watching you or like you're you're not gonna sin because you you you, or you, you God is really powerful like it seems in retrospect it now seems very childish. So it doesn't even go there. Right oh, now, what I will say is that the Hasidic masters and Alter was very very important. <laughs> he says it's very nice to see it as childish after the fact. But denigrating that when you need to go through those stages is counterproductive. I think that's where right, and that's right. That's an issue. So there's a lot of right, right. Yeah, the, I mean, that's, if you're walking down the street and no one can see you, you should try to cultivate an awareness that you're not walking down the street by yourself, and there is someone who can see you. You're never by yourself, right? To the point that it actually does kind of. To whatever degree, and by the way, for most people, that is actually a big achievement. There was there was one chassid um, that Rebbe Shab actually said about him as a praise that even when he's in a room by himself, he has fear of God, meaning he never feels alone. Um, no, for those of you who know anything about Tanya, you're familiar <laughs> with the idea of a bainani. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have level one, which is that you just feel that God is there, and you have that as a as a baseline for your consciousness, then would you ever sin? No. So, and this, if you read Tanya, what you'll see is that the, what makes the Rush a wicked person is not that he sins. He has no sense of God. He has no sense of God. God isn't real to him. And that's why he sins. 
Like, why shouldn't I sin? If, 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 I, if I feel like doing something and I know it's wrong, but it's just me knowing it's wrong, me also wants to do it, right? So like, there's no, there's no principle reason why one of those experiences should override the other, right? And yet, what do you say? The minute there's some other kind of outside sense that someone else is observing me doing the wrong thing, it becomes, it, it becomes effectively impossible for a person to do what they feel is wrong in that situation when they feel like they're being watched by someone. And so the real kind of sin against God is not the fact that you eat the non-kosher food, it's the fact that Real, God is not real enough wait, to stop you from doing it. Does this connect to Tanya that we're learning? Like why everything that's... No, no, Tanya actually tries to... And Tanya actually tries to bypass this whole process and give something that's much more direct. Much more... Um, I'm saying the part that we're learning right now. No, no. The part <coughs> that we're learning right now is, good, is, 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 is something it will, is different. It's kind of a... A bypass route.